Welcome to another edition of The Chamber Presents with Christopher Hoppy. In the spirit of Hollywood, this podcast will feature the City of Angels, Los Angeles, and its relationship to film noir. I title this Lost in a City of Night, American Detective Noir and Cinema. In his book, Somewhere in the Night, Nicholas Christopher says... The city is a labyrinth of human construction. It's as intricate in its steel, glass, and stone as the millions of webs of human relationships that suspend within its confines. It's a projection of the human imagination and also a reflection of its inhabitants' inner lives. And this is a constant theme, really a premise of noir. In these films, the framing of the city our visual progression through the labyrinth is as significant an element as a plot or a characterization. Now, unlike other genres, the city of noir is a character as well. And Christopher continues to describe it as a beast with a life of its own into whose guts the hero's quest is undertaken. And this hero of noir must navigate and try to penetrate this beast, both its physical construction of steel and concrete, the office buildings, the bars, the streets. But also the hero must penetrate the monstrous inner working of this city's politics, law enforcement, the crime syndicates. And this is a most difficult task for one to take on an entire city because the hero of noir is a damaged and flawed character who sometimes ends up as a victim of the system. And the oppressive power of this beast is sometimes too for much for them to succeed in solving their mystery. But sometimes the solution is too high a price to pay. Walter Benjamin, the critic, says that the literary ideological trope for the city thus becomes like the jungle, a primeval forest in the wilderness. The modern city is a site of danger and adventures, its citizen either hunter or victim. Essentially every street in a modern city, there is a potential for crime, the celebrated author Raymond Chandler said in his essay, The Simple Art of Murder, that the realist in murder writes of a world in which gangsters can rule nations and almost rule cities, in which hotels and apartment houses and celebrated restaurants are owned by men who made their money out of brothels, in which a screen star can be the finger man for a mob, and the nice man down the hall is a boss of a numbers racket, a world where a judge worth a cellar full of bootleg liquor and sent a man to jail for having a pint in his pocket, where the mayor of your town may have condoned murder as an instrument of money-making, and where no man can walk down a dark street in safety because law and order are things we talk about, but we refrain from practicing them. It's a world where you may witness a holdup in broad daylight and see who did it, but you will fade quickly back into that crowd rather than tell anyone, because the holdup men may have friends with long guns. This is the city of Noir, a most dangerous place, and it's virtually impossible to escape. Now, cities of Noir are everywhere where everyone tries to achieve their dreams of being a big star, or they have this image that they will make it big. But what happens in that dream is attainable. What do the characters do to still exist in that city where dreams were shattered and hope was lost? In film Noir, these fatal mistakes are because of a siren who tempts the protagonist to do something that they will regret even though most submit willingly. 
Now, there's two almost identical declarations in Chandler's The Big Sleep. First, Marlowe tells Eddie Mars, This is a big town now, Eddie. Some very tough people have checked in here lately. Penalty of growth. The second time is told to Marlowe by Wilde, the district attorney. Sit down, Marlowe. I'll try to handle Captain Kronjiger. But you know how it is. This is a big city now. And at this time when this was written, Los Angeles becoming a big town refers to the fact that it had grown in population from a few thousand in 1830 to several 600,000 new citizens because of the huge oil boom of the 1920s. In another book, Creatures of the Night, Raymond Chandler detective film fiction and film noir, the author Gene Phillips says, when a city grows, crime grows with it. Now, even before the start of the Great Depression, the crime rate in Los Angeles had risen alarmingly. Metropolis had simply grown too quickly to be controlled. The steady streams of news stories of the local Los Angeles papers documented the rise of organized crime. It was sensationalized. It went hand-in-hand with police corruption in the city. Bad cops took bribes of French champagne from madams and cash from bootleggers and gamblers. In nearby Santa Monica on the coast, illegal gambling ships were allowed to operate off its shores. And this real world mirrored Chandler's own vision for L.A. His characters navigate and endure the case of the big sleep, as well as the other novels that followed the adventures of private detective Philip Marlowe, who spawns every Chandler novel, give or take a few short stories. Chandler saw L.A. and its surroundings as a town that was very corrupt, ridden with crime, and full of danger. And hard-boiled writers like Hammett and Chandler, they all but reinvented American prose before the war by somehow desentimentalizing it. They saw the city not as a neon-lighted gallery world, but a squalid sewer where death was hiding in the alley. Marlowe reminds Eddie Mars in The Big Sleep, who is the owner of a gambling house, that there are far more worse mobsters that operate in L.A., like Nash Canino, and that he shouldn't be worried if some smut peddler like Giger was rubbed out, because the same thing could happen to Mars should he cross the wrong people. Now, from the second part, Wilde is reminding Marlowe that there's more to this big city than just your case in trying to find out what happened to Giger and Regan, that even though as tough and full of wits that Marlowe is then the city of Los Angeles could take him down if he oversteps his boundaries with the Los Angeles Police Department. Now, Christopher goes back to say, noir is a dark mirror reflecting the dark underside of the American urban life, the subterranean city, which much crime, high and low culture, raw sexual energy, and deviations and other elemental and ambiguous forces fuel that greater society that often spring. Reflecting this infernal, complex, lower depths of American urban life, which is composed in shifting parts of blood and cement, nightmares, and iron. In his book, The Double Nihilation of the Neon, Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles, William Bravda says, L.A. is a city we can only come to for a second time, having always been there first in our imagination." This figure which slips constantly between our look and the solid real Los Angeles is the Los Angeles of Chandler's fiction. Now think about this. This is a fascinating concept to think, especially with L.A., because in the world of film and how the city is portrayed on a flickering screen, 
city's been captured so much in movies that our perception of Los Angeles is what we've envisioned from images of a film. We see the glowing, glittering city lights atop Mulholland Drive. There's a monstrous Hollywood sign, the drive down Sunset Boulevard, the shops on Rado Drive in Beverly Hills, and of course there's the signpost to Route 66 at the end of Santa Monica Pier. Our visions of L.A. are from our preconceptions of what we've seen in classic Hollywood films. American dream of everything possible takes on a negative connotation with the noir myth of California as the land of cranks, crackpots, and criminals, where it's not funny that a man should be killed, but it is sometimes funny that he should be killed for so little. Now, when reading the pages from The Big Sleep and the Maltese Falcon, one cannot help but be aware of the voice of Humphrey Bogart swirling through our heads when we scan the dialogue in the pages that Chandler and Hammett penned for both stories. Now, Bogey played both classic detectives in the respective films, for Hawks and Houston. Bogart created the quintessential embodiment of a hard-boiled noir detective, so much that the other elements are right out of Hollywood. Chandler's world is so derivative of B-movies and Pulp Fiction, Chandler's solution to this problem is actually an imitation of fakery in his own fictional world as one of his real characteristics. Everyone in a Chandler novel is essentially faking it, including Marlowe. From dialogue itself, he says, I killed my cigarette and got another one out and went through all the motions, all the tired, cliched mannerisms of my trade. Now, Marlowe's smoking simulates Sam Spade, who is the first ritually smoking private eye from Hammett's Maltese Falcon. But Marlowe's smoking also simulates Humphrey Bogart simulating smoking from the 1941 film The Maltese Falcon, but it also references the fact that Marlowe is smoking that very same cigarette in The Big Sleep from 1946. And the L.A. film version of The Big Sleep is very much identical to the one that occurs in this novel. The same prominent locations of noir, the present, like office buildings, the smoky gambling houses, shadowy alleyways where someone can be killed. However, the elements of the subject, the matter of the darker stuff, is toned down in the film, courtesy of the Hayes Code. For instance, the fact that Giger is a homosexual is not even addressed, or that his driver Carol, who shoots Joe Brody, was actually his lover. Now, the oil fields that are owned by General Sternwood, they're never shown. But in the book, this is the location where most of the dramatic action occurs. It's where Carmen Sternwood killed Rusty Regan and tried to bump off Marlowe as well. And there's a lot more females that are present in the film version of Bogart's Marlowe that he has a dialogue, like the female driver. And of course, who can forget the Acme bookstore worker that Marlowe shares a bottle of pretty good rye? Also... The 46 version gives us a lot more comedic moments to relive the action and the tension of that narrative. Now, Los Angeles, we know, is known as a city of angels, and it's a city of dreams. But in noir, it's also a place of paranoia and corruption. But another key concept that noir tackles is isolation. Now, much of noir is concerned with people cut off, 
not just from nature but their own natures, but from one another and from any vital knowledge of the environment they themselves have created. Noir, in a sense, represents human solitude in a world of steel. And in this city of steel, electronic means of communication and high-powered vehicles often seem to keep people apart. They thwart, deflect, or pervert direct communication and straightforward movement. A post-war city dweller is so often mobile, mentally, physically, sensorial, that is, they enjoy the illusion of such mobility. But that inerexable fact of being hemmed in or paralyzed in some way becomes all the more horrific when it's clear to them. Now, what makes the noir city of Los Angeles unique is how its power structure completely revolves around the movie studio industry. The engine that controls Los Angeles, monetary gain, is dependent upon the Hollywood machine. Hollywood is run by depraved, corrupt, dirty old men with disgusting desires. And most of these desires are committed on women. And they come to Los Angeles in hopes of making it as a great big Hollywood star. And this has never been presented more clearly than in both David Lynch's Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive. I now want to look at how noir functions in relation to these films related to that fantastical city of Los Angeles, especially how they use this idea of the noir classic trope of the femme fatale. In an essay, From Irony to Narrative Crisis, Reconsidering the Femme Fatale in the Films of David Lynch, Frida Beckman says, When Lynch makes his female characters not so much into cliches, but into the very idea of cliches, his portrayals of Hollywood women can be seen as commenting on the way film reflects, reveals, and even plays on the straight, socially established interpretation of sexual difference which controls images, erotic ways of looking, and spectacle. Now, in Lost Highway, the use of cliches also plays a central role in the reorganization of conventional plot structure and characterization even. Now, also like Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, which is split into two different parts, displaying two very similar and very different universes. Thus, this troubles identification as well as a narrative continuity for viewers. In both films, Lynch experiments with characters having dual personalities slash identities. Lost Highway, we have Fred, a musician. He's married to Renee, a mysterious woman who fits the classic look of a brunette femme fatale right down to her 1950s Betty Page bangs. One night at a party, Fred meets Renee's friend Andy, who he has a great suspicion of. Now, long ago, Ray Renee worked for a job for Andy, and we learn that Andy is a pornographer for mobster Dick Laurent. And one night, Fred wakes up from a fever dream, and he discovers Renee is dead, and he's covered in blood. Fred's sentenced to death, but one day a prisoner guard goes to discover that Fred's cell is now occupied by a guy named Pete, it's an entirely different person. So they let Pete go free, and he goes back to his normal life, which incidentally involves working on cars 
of Mr. Eddie, a.k.a. Dick Laurent. Now, Pete meets Alice, Laurent's girl who has an uncanny resemblance to Renee, except she's a blonde. Now, Pete gets involved with Alice. She gets Pete to kill Andy for her because she also did a job for Andy that involved porno. Now, Pete and Alice go back to the desert where they make love, and Pete transforms back to Fred, and then he learns the connection of Alice and Renee. Renee had been secretly seeing Dick Laurent, whom Fred kills at the Lost Highway Motel. Spoiler alert. He takes off down a desert highway, and as the camera fades for one final transformation, Lost Highway deals with revenge and second chances to right a wrong. However, both Renee and Alice are sexualized victims of the porno-moving-making business at the hands of Laurent and his men. At one scene that's extremely graphic and disturbing, Alice is even forced to strip at gunpoint for, for Laurent. Now we're going to move on to Mulholland Drive. Now in Mulholland Drive, what Lynch experimented with Lost Highway, he takes on to absolute extremes. So Christopher says again that walking through a city like Los Angeles is like walking through a dream or nightmare. Corridors, stairwells, rooftops, towers, antenna, streets, they all can be shadowy and frozen in time with a flashing steel and chrome. Forbidding doorways, gigantic windows, that with a subtle change of light that can become a funhouse mirrors, not to mention the ever-changing, infinitely varied faces and grotesqueries. The city of dream differs very little from the city of reality. Now, if you're not familiar with it, Mulholland Drive is a tragic love story of two women, Diane and Camilla. Diane, she's a supporting actress, and she's getting chewed up in the Hollywood system. And she witnesses her lover, Camilla, rise up to be not only a big star, but also marry the director of the film that she's starring in. And in her jealousy, she pays a hitman to kill her. But in a nightmarish dream, Diane becomes Betty, a young, hopeful star that discovers Rita, the dream version of Camilla in her aunt's apartment. And Rita can't recall who she actually is, and Betty Help agrees to help Rita learn who what her true identity is. Now, the two explore a neo-noir Los Angeles filled with mobsters that control everything. There's even scumbag lowlifes working in factories who had hopes of making it in Hollywood. And now failed stars are willing to work as servers or prostitutes just as long as they can still bask in that sunny shadow of Los Angeles' glitz and glamour. There's a horrifying presence that lives outside a dumpster of a restaurant that may or may not be a demon. Even an all-powerful movie director like Adam Kessler has no control of who will be cast as the lead in his next big picture. The underworld of Los Angeles controls all. Now at the end, Diane's guilt of what she did to her lover forces her to kill herself. And in relation to Christopher's theory of the noir city, Mulholland Drive is definitely one of the most difficult mazes for our heroine Betty, Diane, to escape. And in true noir fashion, she pays the ultimate price. The Beast. 
that is Los Angeles consumes her. Now, most noir takes place in Los Angeles, but there are other cities of prominence. The very first noir picture we consider is Maltese Falcon from 1941. And it takes place in a city in San Francisco. It's just about a 400-mile north drive along Interstate 5. And in 41, Dashiell Hammett's Maltese Falcon was unique in that it faithfully followed Hammett's book, quoting long passages of the dialogue verbatim. In this film, The Falcon, signaled the beginning of a new realism in Hollywood, occasioned by the threat of world war, and shifted the direction of the crime film in general, and of the detective film in particular. Now, the popularity of this adaptation changed the dominant lead character of the crime film from an official agent of the law to a private dick whose relation to the law is a lot more ambiguous and at times even hostile. Sam Spade, a detective who's hired by Miss Bridget O'Shaughnessy to eventually find the elusive black bird from Mr. Gutman and Joel Cairo. Now, the importance of Hammett's Falcon, that according to Raymond Chandler, is that Hammett gave murder back to the kind of people that committed for reasons, not just to provide a corpse. And with the means at hand, not hand-wrought dueling pistols or curare or tropical fish. He put these people down on paper as they were, and he made them talk and think in the language they customarily used for these purposes. Now, the cityscape of noirish San Francisco in Houston's film is a fog-dense place full of mysterious wharfs, seedy offices, darkened alleys where Spade's partner, Miles Archer, is gunned down and an extravagant hotel room that belongs to the fat man, a.k.a. Casper Gutman, class labor and the home front. Chandler, Woolrich, and the dissident lawman from the 1940s Hollywood and beyond, it stresses that the stories like the Maltese Falcon and the Big Sleep, that there is a major shift in the role of the detective. With Sam Spade, it's more prominent that the private eye is now working class stature. And he keeps stressing the fact that he needs to get paid. Now, in a footnote of Bro's essay, he says, The detective genre in film and literature is one of the few, if not the only, American genres in which we watch someone at work and we're made to feel a fascination with the moment-to-moment way they go about their work. Think about it. Almost every detective is always down on their luck. They got maybe a bottle of scotch stashed away, a couple of revolvers, maybe a couple pistols, um, a secretary that they got to pay, and they're always hitting up their uh, retainer for expenses and anything else they need. Now, both cities are prominent, but with the potential for death and crime at every corner and every alleyway, tall office building, one could easily argue that it is the mean streets of Los Angeles that are far more depraved of a city because of these connections with the studio system of making movie pictures, as well as the West Coast mob controlling the rackets of gambling and pornography. 
thousands of hopeful actors and actresses move to L.A. at the chance of stardom. And as we've learned from the tales in Mulholland Drive, Lost Highway, and The Big Sleep, that many have paid this price with their bodies, as well as their souls. Some remain in a shell of their former selves, but it's just to be in the periphery of that celluloid labyrinth that is Hollywood.